my dad would cook for him and all the guides lived in this little we called it the mouse mahal i mean it was just a little rundown shack I'm kind of an addictive person if i ever get on drugs i feel like it's over <laughs> Alright guys, welcome back to our next episode. It's been a little bit of a little bit of a break in between our last one. We hope that that break was worth it because we got a cool guest on today. Um, one that when we put out folks that you guys wanted to hear from, his name has been said a half a dozen times. And then we put up some of the questions that you guys wanted to ask this guy. We got flooded just dozens and dozens of questions. So um, without further ado, we've got George Dunklin on the line with us uh, for this week's podcast guest. George, we really appreciate you uh, coming on. Oh, thank you, Joe. Uh, it's an honor and pleasure to be be with you guys. You know, for those of you guys um, that know know who George is, uh, you might know him from a couple different places. He's got all sorts of of accolades and, and accomplishments and and different avenues to his to his resume and to his career thus far. And so we're hoping to dig into a little bit of that and hit on a couple of the different facets. Uh, George, where are you at right now? I'm uh, uh, owner farm and, and uh, just South of Stuttgart, about 15 miles, just built our offices here on uh, next to five Oaks uh, across the street from where I live. So I just walked home for lunch and just came back over to do this podcast. So it's really, really nice to just be able to walk back and forth. Um, look at the farms now uh, at my at my office window. Saw deer come by yesterday. See doves right now, and, and soon it'll be ducks out there in the field right in front of me. So feel very fortunate. Uh, was located in our offices were in, uh, we were in DeWitt for a while in Stuttgart, and then last year I just made the move out here. Just kind of my, my final stand uh, to be where I've always wanted to be. That's a cool George. Area. This time of year. Do you just saddle up some mosquitoes and have them uh, take you home when you want lunch and then bring you back to the office when, when you're there? Are they out of control right now? Yeah, you learn. Uh, we've been, I've been here for 40 years now uh, out here in the country, and you learn to go in at, at dusk. <laughs> you don't yeah. say, there's a time, there's a mat. You know, right now, there's no problem. I just walk down there and back. You don't feel a mosquito. But you get around dusk time, and here they come. They come. They come big time. So you, you just go in, it does. They ain't gonna yeah. stop it. You know, they're yeah, they, they got us outnumbered. I don't care what what, what system <laughs> you know, what you got. There's no way to slow them down. That's such right. a that's such a cool part of the world down there. Um George, are you down by like um are you by like Lodge's Corner? Um I would what? I'm north of Lodge's Corner, uh about three miles. You'd uh, come back north on one sixty five and then go down four miles on one fifty two or right on the highway. Oh, okay. Okay. It's on the way to Hollowell Reservoir and Biomed Wildlife Management Area. It's on the way that way. Beautiful, beautiful world, part of the world. And and seems, I mean, obviously, obviously five oaks, but I mean, uh, just a badass hunting area down there. And that whole, that whole little corridor through there seems like some really good, some really good hunting spots. Well, we're fortunate. We've got great public lands. Uh, Arkansas Game and Fish Commission has about 33,000 acres here within uh that parallels bow meat on the uh just five miles from us at the most three three to five and then uh some wonderful uh private clubs that that manage very well the Snowden Star North and you got the Hampton family Mac George family and the Smart family just some really good managers as well then you got the whole big ditch area that's uh about 10 miles north of here that's very well managed so 
uh, the combination of the private and the public areas, uh, along with the rice farmers uh, that leave habitat out, uh, really make the combination of all that here located right on Balmeda is, is the reason these birds have been coming here for a long time. And when will you start seeing them, George? Like, you know, I talked with, and that's probably just a stupid question, but and I know it depends on a lot of different things, but you talk to some of those guys in Arkansas at some of these historic areas, and it's like, we're always going to see a push of ducks fill in the blank. It just seems like, it just Halloween. seems like there's Halloween. a spot. Halloween. Halloween's always, you see that kind of first push of mallards that yeah. come through. I mean, we'll, we'll start picking up some blue-winged teal, you know, end of next month. But as far as seeing, and then you, then you got, you know, the spoonbills and uh, pintail and gadwall, but the mallard push uh, is usually around Halloween. We'll see a good good push through that. Um, you, know, it, you know, every year is different. Last year was, we didn't have that push early. I mean, it was weird at not seeing many mallards here before the season started. Uh, year before, through our research, uh, part of our company we we tagged we got 700 ducks uh, call last year we didn't get any because you know you got to have everything gone all the bait gone 10 days before the season but but finally when you guys get the cold weather up, up there that, that helps push them down this way and they came but it, it was strange not seeing any birds in the in the sky i mean literally where i live i can watch them every afternoon and every morning and you know i, I can watch them from my bedroom window um when we have the habitat right so but George, you know, it's yeah. it's interesting. We we communicate with Jim Ronquist a lot. Joe and I both do. And there's there's a lot of ducks that like when they show up here, it's not just a logical progression. It's not like they go from Canada to North Dakota to South Dakota to Nebraska to Missouri to Arkansas. You know, we see the same thing as you guys. So like the last two years, they've been later. Um, but the five years before that, they were early. And, you know, one thing that sticks in my mind was the year of COVID when no one was hunting in Canada. There was a lot of speculation that the ducks would be late because they weren't getting any pressure on the prairies. And, man, we had more ducks that year, more mallards that year by October 20th than I can ever remember. There were so many here so early. You remember that, Joe? Yeah, I do. It was, it was unbelievable. It really was. Yeah. It was like youth season. Remember when yeah. there wasn't any pressure in that issue? No pressure. Yeah. 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 So. It, but I, but I do, we get those ducks at about the same time. So like, I think when they have that first, uh, that first moon migration, yeah, some of them stop in Missouri, some of them go on to Arkansas, some of them probably go past that, but we tend to see them about the same time. You know, we may get a few more of them that stop just because we're a little further North, but they, they, Seems like they come at the same time. Well, it, it, as as you will just said, I mean, there's a lot of unknown, and we're hoping through all the the transmitters, GPS transmitters that are being put out by DU and us and and others, you know, we'll be able to start compiling this data to try to understand a little bit better about what happened. I mean, you know, we're putting a tiny, you know, there's what ten million birds in breeding population, and we're putting a few hundred of them, so it's a tiny part of the uh, of, of the flock but but hopefully we'll understand better how these work you know where we catch them where they go do they do they are they in different tribes so to speak are they different family units or different dna you know who knows but but why do they do what they do i mean that's that's always been the 
the mystery question. Why do they do And how do they do? I mean, we do know they come back to the same spot every year. Um, how do they do all that? You know, so that's what makes it fun, you know, trying to figure all that out. So you, George, let's, we've got all sorts of questions and things okay. to continue to ask you, but let's, let me start with asking you this, where you're sitting at right now, if I understand correctly, is a, is a multi-generational family property, correct? Uh, I'm third generation. Uh, the property I'm sitting on, I bought in 1983, but, uh, but it's sitting next to a farm that my grandfather, L.A. Black, started acquiring properties in 1907. He died the last day of 1945. My mother was the youngest of three daughters, and she inherited this um, land after her mother died in 1956, uh, the year I was born. So uh, we were absentee landowners. My father had his own business in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, about 45 miles away. And so we were we were absentee landowners. But my father would bring me over here to duck hunt on one of our rice fields. We would back then you you rotated rice one year rice two year soybeans. And so the the uh, one of our tenants, a guy named Bud Bell, would rotate the pit for us. We had a rice just a pit, steel pit. And that's where I, my dad started bringing me when I was eight and let me shoot a shotgun when I was 10. And, uh, but that's, that's where I fell in love with the, with the whole sport is just, just being with him on, on hunting. And he'd take my, my first cousin would come with me. He's my same age there from Pine Bluff. And then we, then when I started driving, you know, we got wheels, things changed. I started finding a few more places. And then after college, I came back over here to, to learn how to farm and to learn our properties. And that's when I started developing the properties. But the ducks are what brought me back after college. So, so the ducks brought you brought you back to the to the property, and now is that property? I, I'm not trying to get technical, but I mean, is it mostly a contiguous piece of property down there? No, we're we're scattered over a couple of counties, uh, over Jefferson County and Arkansas County. Uh, we've done a lot of consolidation over the last eight years. So I ended up buying my sister out and and uh, sold my interest in the, my grandfather's original company. So I've I've personally, I've shrunk way down to what I was managing and being part of to what a much smaller amount that I'm uh, controlling now, person, just personally. But we're in about, we're about three different locations here. Uh, uh, we got this farm that we're on, we got another operation uh, about 10, about 15 miles south, and then another operation about uh, 15 miles to the, to the north. So, in that operation, it, obviously, you know, Five Oaks obviously is a is a part of of your operation. But on the farming side of things, um, rice and soybean production primarily. Uh, rice only. Um, I got out of when I bought my sister out in 2015. I retired after 34 years from actively farming, and and uh, I ended up having to sell a lot of my agricultural properties to keep what I call my conservation properties. And and so I'll focus just strictly on that now, on the conservation properties. I have bought one of the rice farms back that I rent out. And, but in time, we'll, we'll probably convert that to a WRE or some kind of long-term program in that in time. But uh, so don't, we, we do grow, we do grow crops, but we, we just let the mallards kind of um, harvest. Yeah, them combine it for you. Yeah. 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 So hey, hey, go ahead, Ira. Joe. Well, I I just think it's so interesting when we have a guy like George or Jeff on here to give us some perspective 
with their age, you know, you talk about you got wheels and and that opened up a world for you. If you could just give us a little insight into like what kind of tools you had back then, what your what your hunting vehicle was like, uh, how things have changed from from those days when you first started hunting and what that was like. Because so many of us don't, you know, we just take what we have now for granted. And I, I think it's really interesting for us to hear that. And, and one, let me add one thing to that, George. So yeah, hit on that. Like some of the, some of the tools of the trade and the time, but also, also talk a, a little bit about as a kid, you know, when you really got the bug for, for this hunting stuff, what was the, and I've always said it and, and I, and I, I know it to be true, but maybe it's just me who feels it that way. But what was kind of the, the feeling around Arkansas duck hunting and Arkansas duck season and, you know, what was kind of that feeling as a kid when you're, you got your wheels and you're 16 or 17 years old and it's turning, it's getting to fall and winter. I mean, what, what'd that feel like in the area down there? Well, uh, to answer that question first, you know, fall is a great time. The Arkansas Razorbacks are our big, big team in that. And so, you know, we were able to go to the Razorback games at Little Rock. And so, you know, I love the fall. My birthday is November 16th. And uh, so fall has always been a, a very special time. Uh, but there's nothing like opening night duck season. I, you know, as a kid, I'm sure y'all the same way. You can't, you can't go to sleep. You're so excited about the next day. And, and, you know, that's just such a, I, I probably sleep a little better now, but I still get excited about opening day, day of duck season. Mm. Um, but it, but times have changed so dramatically. I, when I was 12 years old, we only had a 20 day duck season. It opened on December 5th and closed Christmas afternoon. I remember that wow. year. The only year, only time I went was my dad on Christmas afternoon when I was 12. Um, you know, so we, you know, obviously we didn't have GPS receivers and ATVs back in those days. So, uh, I mean, we, we walked everywhere, walked from the levees to the, to the blind, to the pit. When I was 16, uh, my first cousin, Bill Dunkley and I, we discovered uh, some woods that we own. My dad had always thought we owned those woods, but we decided right before Christmas during school break that we'll go discovery. My cousin Bill's father had a four drive uh, K5 blazer. I had a, I had a four station wagon. Well, we weren't going to go pretty far. Four <laughs> but I was just going to wheels, you know. Uh, oh, anything. Yeah. And so we got in that, that K5 blazer and we went, we went exploring and we, uh, we found the mallets. We found that was a big flood year, uh, 72, 73. Uh, we're in the 10th grade, Mississippi backed up in the Arkansas, the Arkansas backed up in the Balmeda, Balmeda had backed up on some of our property. And we, uh, I mean, I'll never forget the scene. I got out, we got out of the truck, put our red, we, 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 we were having as much fun mudding as we did anything else, you know, just mm -hmm. spent the buckshot field and got out. We went as far as we could to the water line, we got out, put our red ball waders on, which, which that was a big improvement over hip boots that we always had worn. Um, got a red ball waiters and started walking the woods. And all of a sudden we saw nothing but green heads swimming in front of us. Season was going to reopen day after Christmas, uh, a few days after that. And we got all our high school buddies and that whole next week while the water was up in those ducks, we, we, we hunted all day long and we learned that moss grew on the North side of the tree. We didn't know, you know, we learned what a stump hole was. We learned what the slough was. We got wet, we got lost. Uh, unfortunately, I bet you learned where the top of those waders was. Yeah, exactly right. Because <laughs> uh, he got real cold a few times. <laughs> that water came over the top. They were already cold, you know, red ball. There was no insulation those things. We had those uh, walls, overall zone. But, you know, we had a great time. Was, that was a, a 
forever experience that changed uh, my life and my cousin's life as well. Bill's life. He 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 went to he went farming on his uh, family's farm back in Dumas, Arkansas. But it it really got me hooked on the whole temper of the ducks and and what it could be. The, our next two years in eleventh and twelfth grade, it didn't flood, so all we saw was squirrels. You know, shooting squirrels. That was it. My, <laughs> my mother let me build a little levee around some of the woods and my summer my freshman year in college and so that really got me started off on the green tree side uh, but you know equipment then we walked to the hole uh took about a 20 20 minute walk 25 minute walk in the morning so you get there you're sweating i never forget when dad uh, for christmas one year bought me a three horsepower john boat i thought that was man that was the coolest thing yeah, <laughs> i go in there with a 60 horse now you know, uh, man, if you showed up at the boat ramp with a three horse now, yeah, people yeah. would laugh at you. They'd laugh you back into back into South but, Arkansas. Hell, you'd it, probably be swamped. Yeah, you'd probably get swamped. You're right. But it was better than walking. Oh, <laughs> That's man. And, uh, you know, it was it was life was simpler. It was uh, it was just a different world. Our hunting now is much more consistent, much better uh, than it was then. Um, you know, we know, we know how to manage the properties now, you know, then we were flooding our woods early. We, you know, just didn't know, we didn't know what we didn't know. And, and there wasn't a lot of, of science, uh, involved at that point. It really went to a lot of the work that came out of y'all, out of Missouri, uh, that Lee Fredrickson and Mickey Heitmeyer, some of the incredible work, those guys that came out of, uh, Gaylord Labs really started teaching all of us. I mean, I remember first seminar I went to Mickey Heitmeyer seminar just it just that would have been about 2002 2003 he just opened my eyes to things I, I knew something was wrong but I just couldn't figure out what it was and he was able to just kind of connect the dots for me it really got me inspired uh to start looking at our woods and how we manage our duck operations totally different uh, it was, so Missouri uh Missouri, Phil Covington, I don't know if you guys remember his name, uh, great biologist out of Missouri, came working for Ducks Unlimited, as long as Mickey did as well. But those those are some of our our duck gods that Jody Fagan and I call, call them. Jody's a biologist for me. Uh, that, that's fantastic. But, but, you know, learning from those guys, you know, the 93 flood that y'all experienced was so yeah. devastating. Learn, you know, learn from that. Um, what, what can happen uh, so a catastrophe happens like that uh, yeah wiped out all our pen oak flats up here yeah. not for the most part you know just destroyed them well you know we learned after that phil coverton put me on uh, some containerized trees that they do at keeling forest keeling nursery just north of st louis those uh, those guys uh, uh, and what kind of worked out you know saw some of the habitat and work they were doing so we did, we've done quite a bit of that down here. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that we've learned from the, the great state of Missouri that we're doing in Arkansas. A lot of, a lot of influence from, from those, those, those folks in Missouri that just were pioneers to me in the, the science of it. Here in Arkansas, kind of go back to your, Joe, your kind of your question. You know, we, it you know, we just, I call it living off the fat. We, we had it so good for so long here. That we really didn't have to do anything and as the trees and the, and the quality of the habitat has diminished and the agriculture has changed landscape has changed dramatically since my first crop in 1981 
when we take it all, when we harvest it, the equipment, all the aspects, just a tremendous amount of change. If we don't continue to evolve, we'll be like the quail. We'll just be gone. You know, the quail, I don't know what the quail like is in Missouri, uh, but, you know, in the southeast, it's, they're gone. And it's not because we killed them out. It's because that landscape changed, the habitat changed. Birds couldn't adapt. And um, and so hopefully, hopefully we'll continue to evolve and adapt to the change. If we didn't change our rice growing conditions, we wouldn't have rice because we couldn't afford to plant. I mean, it's 100, 100 bushels an acre versus 200 bushels an acre now. You know, harvested yeah. in just a few days instead of a few weeks, if not months, we would have been, it would have been gone. You know, the rice farmer would have been gone. So you got to, you can't blame progress on anything, but we just got to work with progress and use it, use the science and just American ingenuity to figure it out. You know, and I think that's kind of what we are right now. You know, I think we've been able, we're, we might look back, this is the golden era of ducks. You know, we've had, what, 27 years of uh, liberal seasons. Uh, like I said, 1968, um, it was 12, it was 20 days. Yeah. We went through the late 80s and early 90s. We had 30 days. We had people giving up on the sport, selling their places, said it's over. Yeah. I remember that for sure. George, give us, give us some insight into because the the Arkansas public stuff has been there for a long time and you've seen it and so we talked a little bit about the technology you know you're not going to walk into the middle of Biomeda and you're not going to get there with your three horsepower motor <laughs> give us some insight into just your perspective of safe havens for ducks on public ground with the technical technological changes and if you feel like that's caused a shift in duck use on those areas to places where there is good private land, large track management. Um, just give us your perspective on that, if you would. Well, we've certainly learned in the last couple of years with our GPS studies, watching these birds and what they're doing, <clears throat> watching them fly over, fly over the WMA, uh, and and not sampling to after the duck season. A couple of things have happened. Is that one that, as you mentioned, the technology where we used to walk in. These places, and there were uh, uh, the tree. The the the, the Biomeda was built in the early fifties, late forties, early fifties. So your trees had not started to deteriorate so much uh, with the with the consistent uh, early flooding. Uh, Nineteen seventy one is when they they dredged out a little bio, uh, excuse me, uh, salt bile. The water got gets to Biomeda. The drainage, the basin, the little Biomeda. Little Biomeda actually drain uh, fills. Biomeda Wildlife Management Area, not big biomeda. Uh, little biomeda, uh, salt bio comes into little biomeda, and they, that's where they built the uh, all the, the levee system to hold the water in there for duck hunters. That was good for a period of years until the trees just quit producing the acorns, the food. It's as simple as that. The red oaks aren't producing the, the, the mass crop that they've got to produce to, to hold the amount of birds they're trying to hold. That's one problem. The second problem is to your point, the technology of uh, mud motors and GPS and all the things that we they get around the disturbance level is so high. It might not be as many hunters as there were maybe, but certainly the disturbance has never been as high. And and as you guys know as well as I do, it's it, you know duck duck has to have food, has to have habitat, and and no as little as disturbance as possible, or they will go someplace else. As simple as that. They, they got one, 
when they wake up in the morning, their whole goal is to make it to the next day. And, and if they're going to get to serve, they're going to go someplace else. And it's, 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 it's in brains are, you know, it's right. pretty, pretty simple stuff. So I say all that I'm, I was a commissioner from 2005 to 2012. So I know the, I know what, what it's like being on that decision-making side of the table and, and feeling the wrath of, of the public when they don't like, uh, I like a decision to make. Um, there, there's going to have to be some hard decisions made on these public properties as far as do we want just to have a place for people to go or do we want to try to have a quality experience for these folks? Now, in Missouri, y'all do draws. Y'all really manage that quality experience. In Arkansas, we never had to do that. We got one public area called Rath Creek, which uh, they do uh, manage that and they do very well. There. But that's it. Everything else is wide open. You just walk in or boat in whenever you want to. Uh, and got to be out by noon, but but you know every day is that way. Every morning, so I think there's going to be either we got to buy acquire a lot more public properties, and we need we got to have a quality public land, uh, quality public land for these public hunters to have a quality experience. Otherwise, we'll lose the sport at some point. We'll lose the resource without the hunter. Uh, I'll lose five oaks. I'll, I'll lose all this. If we don't have good quality public hunting, we're at Ducks Unlimited. We're we're raising money to, to do engineering work on all these WMAs to provide the engineering side. Uh, that's going to be several millions of dollars, but it's going to take it's going to take tens of millions of dollars to do the habitat work over time. Um, but it's got to be done, and, and it's it's got to be done, or, or we'll lose this critical mallard habitat that that all of us need in the flyway. You know, it's just not Arkansas. It'll affect y'all in northern Missouri uh, if we don't have quality wintering grounds for birds. Hundred percent. Yeah. So we know, got, that's why it's, it's so much bigger than than what so many people think it is. It's not just one spot. It is. This is. This goes from the boreal forest to the Yucatan. Well, we. I think we're all we're all guilty of it. Not not you, obviously, George. You're probably one of the few that isn't guilty of it, but. You know, I think I think I know I am. I think we're all guilty of sitting there saying, looking at our airspace or, the, you know, the five miles on either side of us saying, you know, or us and what's north of us. And that's all we care about. You know, uh, there's just a sentiment of I don't give a shit what goes on in Arkansas. I'm in Missouri. You know, by the time that I'm worried about Arkansas, you know, I, my season's already over. I don't give a crap. You know, I mean, there's just so many people that feel that way. And that's just the general public that feels that way. And not about Arkansas, but just I don't care about it if it's not in my area. And when it's a migratory burden and when it's actually a resource, you yeah. know, when you look at it that way, then you almost have to look yourself in the mirror and be like, all right, you know, am I am I providing anything? Am I am I giving anything or am I just taking everything? And and that's something that I think a lot of us have been guilty at at times. And and, you know, it's just for the amount of ducks that we actually get to kill and that we actually get to pull the trigger on that is so small in comparison to what us pulling the trigger and killing and affecting, you know, we might kill, you know, we might kill 200 ducks, but our actions might educate or pressure or fool with or screw up adversely affect 20,000 ducks, you know? And yeah. so it's, it's a blessing and a curse, but it's just, you know, doing, doing things the right way um, definitely, definitely makes a difference, especially when it's across, all these different flyways. And I think sometimes we get, 
we get caught up in, like I said, like on our own little world. And Hey, if I'm not, you know, I don't care because, because that doesn't affect me personally. Well, it, it might in the long run. It, absolutely right. And you know, conservation organizations like the one I'm near and dear to ducks unlimited. Uh, you know, we don't look at one place. It is a continental resource that we look from uh, boreal forest to, to Mexico. And and thank goodness we got organizations like that. I can't imagine a duck hunter not being a member of a conservation organization that's putting back uh, into the resource, um, that's working on public policy, uh, that's working um, to try to recruit new duck hunters or, and keep the young. It, there's so many things that we got to do as a, as a whole that if we just look at it just from our own perspective and not worry about anything else, it won't last. But that's kind of the sign of our times right now. You know, I mean, that's that's the feeling we have in Washington. That's the feeling from our leaders. You know, it's just about us. And and that's that's not good for ducks. That's not good for our country. Um, we've got to, and that's what I'm excited about, this whole podcast things that are going on. We got a chance to really get information out and, and allow uh, truth and, and, and accurate information to get out and that people can hear. You know, they, can, they don't have to listen to this, but this is, I'm taking my time today to talk to you guys to, about something that's very passionate to me. Um, yeah. You know, my only benefit is I'm hoping to see more birds this fall, you know, fly in the skies. Yeah, that's that's what I get out of it. So that, uh, so that kind of fits in with what we were talking about before the podcast, George. You know, using the science and, and not using not using the the old oh I've had a bad hunt or I came to Arkansas for for a three day trip and I only had one day where I killed any ducks because the weather was shit or you know whatever whatever in our mind that you know when we look at a situation there's so much of it in the waterfowl world that is that might be right but there's such a large percentage of it that's perceived you know mm -hmm. and there's such and it might be perceived that way it might be people that have never even experienced it. They might be seeing it on social media or they might be hearing what their buddy said, or, you know, they might be hunting a spot with horrible conditions and, and, you know, the, in, in, in a warm spell or, or whatever you have, but you look at it with your scientific eye, plus you're hunting every day, you know, what's going on out there, you know, kind of the heartbeat of, of the area. You know, when you hear people talk about, Oh, so-and-so short stopping ducks or so-and-so is, is holding all the ducks or that rich son of a bitch has all the ducks on his property and we can't compete because they've got so much money. Like, what do you think when you hear those things from a scientific, uh, from a guy that's very passionate about public ground and, and public opportunity from a guy that has a conservation scientific background, a, a former production agriculture guy and, and a, and a, an owner operator of a duck club. What do you think when you hear that stuff? Just makes you very disappointing when you see on social media some of the stuff you know no nobody holds up their hands without any ducks in them. you know I mean, they're going to take pictures the only pictures you'll ever see social media is everybody having tremendous ducks and and all of a sudden that's the that's what everybody thinks the other guy's having it, it's just not realistic we have bad days at five oaks like everybody does um it, it's disappointing but i can't control what other people think all I can control is what I what I do, and and we work very hard at at trying to do the right thing every day. I mean, I've converted Five Oaks uh, into Five Hundred One C Public Charity. I'm a volunteer at Five Oaks. I've never got paid a nickel for the 39 years before I did it that way. And last year I converted to the Five Hundred One C Three, and that's where we're going to stay because I want Five Oaks to be here 100 years from uh, from now. 
and I want to be managed from a science perspective. But we can't do it without the people coming, the contributors now uh, that are coming to support us. It's as simple as that. It takes, we have an old adage in the conservation business, conservation without money, it's just conversation. And it's not going to, it just doesn't happen without human uh, human hands helping us. We're not, we didn't have duck season. We're not going to go spend hundreds of thousands of dollars every year on habitat and flooding. It's just not going to happen. So we'll, our, our ebb and flow of duck numbers, well, eventually it'd be like the quail. It just would, it would get down to a number that it would, you know, it'd be something to see about. Um, so we, we've got to continue. Uh, and I, and I hear what you're saying. I know people say that about myself and others because they want to find, there's got to be somebody doing something wrong if they're successful. And, and I want my neighbor to be successful. I don't compete against my neighbor, whether in Chillicothe, Missouri, or uh, across the, across the highway from me. We all complement each other, and and that's that is that's the philosophy I live by every day. And that everybody here at Five Oaks lives by. We complement each other. We want people to be successful of it, but that doesn't mean you can be successful every day on every hunt. I get you know this. I get four or five emails and calls a day, and, and typically the the one call I get is. Tell me when the best time to come. Well, I say, tell me when the front's going to come through. When's this going to yeah. happen? I, I better just get a just get a calendar out and throw a dart at it with the season. I, I I I can make an argument on every day of the season that I've had a good day and a bad day every day from the opening day to the last day. So, so that's so true. Expectations, setting expectations. That's the heart. That's what we're battling now because of social media, setting expectations realistic expectations of what it's hunting it's not shooting it's not it's hunting and, and part of the joy of the hunt if we had a perfect hunt every day we'd never appreciate we never appreciate it we gotta have some the bad ones to appreciate the good ones just part that's of right and we, and we talked you know we talked about success but you know i'm 54 so let's say the last 30 years of observations and and i'm curious as your take on this thing but when you think back on public availability, public lands and private lands and private land management here, and I would imagine the same thing in Arkansas, but if I go back to when I was 20 and I think about the private land managers that were interested in duck hunting, the, the amount of the landscape that was affected was almost zero. There was almost nobody managing or conserving or taking care of the resource and and people could kill ducks so like if you said well i'm going to spend money and pump this and not hope that it rains people would be like well why would you do that you could go hunt the river or whatever and then mm -hmm. then that kind of became commonplace and then the first the first suggestion or the first person who flooded corn around here it's like why in the world would you ever consider leaving something that's worth money in the field and putting water on it so you could duck on that's that's like the craziest thing in the world and now there's so much of it so you know we can talk about the success and all that but, but i have to say thank god for the good land managers because you know a lot of our public ground what just based on the changes that we talked about the duck use isn't necessarily as high as it used to be, but but the private the the high quality private conservation 
mindset that has just blossomed uh, is unbelievable. And it's great for the resource. And regardless of whether you own a piece of that property or you only hunt on public ground, whether it's a river or a managed place or a lake or whatever, everybody's a, a beneficiary of that, not just the person that owns it. Everybody is. You're exactly right. Yeah. Uh, the North American model of wildlife conservation is something I, that, that all of us in conservation live by. And, you know, Europe doesn't have it. You know, Europe, the landowner owns the, owns the game, but not, not in this, not in North America, the public owns the game. And that's the number one tenant in those, in that, in that model. And that can never change. And, and whether the private landowner, like you said, again, the manager's, managing at a greater rate than it used to be that, that everybody wins because the resource wins you know that's right the resource wins. we can't if, we're, we've got more ducks i mean we're really living in a day and time where we have as many ducks as that we've ever had and you know and, and since the season started uh you know back in the 1915 i mean there have been ups and downs but we're we're living in a really good time now are they on your place you know, at the time you go, that's maybe, maybe not. Then you really got to get back down and how well you managing your own property. How, well, think you... all the days that they're there and you can hear them quacking yeah. and you can hear them splashing and you never see one in the air. That's right. I mean, there's those days. Look at the look at the sport of duck hunting, like the sport of basketball or football. Back in the old days, anybody who gave it a half a little bit of effort, you know, I, I shouldn't say that, but anybody with some skill and some effort – it was a lot easier to get into playing college sports or professional sports because the game hadn't advanced. Now look at it. I mean, some of those guys that were the heroes back then wouldn't hold a candle to some of these folks today because, because the, our interest in those sports has elevated the entire game and the entire skills that it takes to play the game. And, and, you know, for me to be mad that I can't go play professional football because the game's evolved. I mean, why, why get mad at the game, you know? And it's just like, it's just like the duck hunting stuff. I mean, if you're going to put your, you know, used to be if grandpa had a pond or a little piece of woods or a slash somewhere, yeah, you you could go out there and kill some ducks and not have to do much. Now it's going to be a full-time job to do it to do it right, as you well know, George. Yeah. But but look what you're providing. I mean, you know, I'm looking at the map right now of some of your property there where you're sitting at. I would I would have to assume that the efforts that you're putting in on your farm is creating some opportunities for neighbors and stuff as well. You're not shooting them all. I can't, well, I can't, I can't stop them from leaving our property. Right. Yeah, they, <laughs> they don't know property lines. They don't know countries uh, lines. So that, that's why it's so important. That That's why that North America model, that first thing is that the, the public owns the wildlife, not, not George Dunklin or y'all, the public owns it. And it, it will, as long as we keep that as the number one tenant, we'll have a chance to keep, these birds. Think, think how much we've changed in the last 50 to 100 years. And we still got tremendous amount of birds. I mean, you, you probably saw the article in the New York Times last year, year four, about there's three to four billion less neotropical songbirds. And all. Right. Waterfowl's going up. It's the only one that's going up. And they give credit to us as the hunters and organizations like Ducks Unlimited for making that happen because we got a reason for it. We got a use for it. Um, I mean, it's it's really remarkable. When you look back at what's happened and how many wetlands that we've drained, we've tiled the whole Midwest, we've drained the South with ditches. We nothing works. We get we get water to the Mississippi faster now than ever. You know, forty one percent of the country drains to the Mississippi. 
nothing works like it did 100 years ago. And then we go back 100, you have to go back hundreds of years because that's how all this stuff evolved, these trees. We've changed so much. And with somehow, fortunately, the duck has been able to adapt to all the screw-ups that we've done as, as humans to evolve. Back to your analogy of football. I, I was a tennis player in college, Memphis State. And, you know, I, I'm, I watch Wilton. I have TV here in my office, so I have it on during the day. The, these athletes today in tennis are, 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 you know, the racket, yes, the rackets are better. But that's not the reason that tennis is better. It, it's because the athleticism. Uh, these kids, they, they, they spend three or four hours every day stretching their muscles, their they work out. I mean, their their athleticism is off the chart. I mean, there's very few people in the world. I, I would have very few NBA players co compete at, at, at the level of these tennis players. Um, but that's all that's all changed in the last four years. I mean, it's because money's driven it, and and, and you know people want to compete to win, and they just figured out how to get better and better and, and better. And George, you know, you look at like, I'm going to use the tennis analogy, but whenever I was younger, even, you know, 10, 15, 12, whatever years ago, you'd sit there and you'd look and it'd be Rafael Nadal versus Roger Federer. It was like, those are the two Titans of the sport. And then Novak Djokovic came on and now it's anybody's game. A lot of the times, I mean, there's still Titans in the sport, but the, the overall rising tide has lifted a lot of these guys up to where it's anybody's game sometimes. And the Williams sister did it. Williams sister. Exactly. Women's tennis. They thought they were completely dominate. Well, guess what? Every the rising tide brought every but competition brought everybody else up, and it does. Yeah. yeah, and it does all the time, and and we've seen it in football and basketball. But that's a good thing. That's why we're that's why we're still here. I mean, that's the whole American spirit. And it's we don't ever lose that. You know, it's yeah. kind of like you know, I come to a place, I come to a place like Five Oaks, let's say, and I, you know, I'm I'm coming down there, I, I buy a hunt at Five Oaks, I'm like, wow, this place is awesome. Now I'm going to go to my spot and I saw two or three things they did that I'm going to try to do, you know, and, and at a large standpoint, you know, I mean, that's what Ira did. And that's what a lot of these folks have done. You know, they take ideas that they see other places. And then when they have their own place through trial and error, and, and, and then maybe somebody picks up something from them and does that on their place. And so that's exactly what we've done. I mean, it's all we, all we've done. We share information with all with each other. We go look at other places, what works. So I'm saying the your Missouri guys have a huge impact on what we do here so how, what, what didn't work you know how much how much of your management effort and how much of your duck uh usage george would you on, on the farm the complex that you're on right now which uh looks like a nice size property mm -hmm. to, to say the least um how much of it is a moist soil field type setup that the ducks are using and how much food value um are yeah. they actually getting out of the woods Compared to uh, oh, out of woods, I was going to say, you know, it, we, last year we were about 65% moist soil. The other five, other 35% on our on open areas was, would have been millet, corn, rice. So we we like that two thirds, one third split with the moist soil. Uh, on the timber, uh, it, it, a lot depends on the temperature. You know, when, when it's just like, I'm sure a lot of the corn up there, the birds aren't going to hit it unless it gets to a certain temperature. That turns them on where they need those hot calories. Same thing in the acorn. They they got a that that acorn is similar to the corn. It's got it's a very high uh, high caloric type uh, food source, and they, they you know, unlike us, they eat what they need, not what they want. You know? <laughs> uh, 
And, and so our our key here is what we do, and I'm sure y'all do at Habitat Flats and other places, is to provide a buffet or a real diversity of, of habitat, of food sources. Because, you know, even though every mallard might look the same, every greenhead looks the same, they're not. I mean, you've got some that just flew in a thousand miles. You got some that may have been here for, for three weeks. You got one that's four years old. You got a young, they're, they, they all have different needs. And, and and so we try to provide between loafing mounds and um, habitat areas that that they can get different, whether it's Biden's or Smartweed or barnyard grass or or rice, uh, millet uh, or acorns. It, it's or or um, algae on the on the reservoirs where the gadwalls are in there. There's much. It's whatever they need. We try to provide it. We just don't know what day they're going to need what um, and when it is. And but we but we. But that's that's our secret sauce. It's just diversity. You know, it's not anything. You know, that nobody doesn't know. You know, I, I would never want a place where I just have all corn or all rice. Yeah. You know, I want I want a mixture of all those things. And we really, you know, when the when the U.S. Fish and Wildlife changed the uh, the rules on the manipulation of of moist soil back in the late '90s, it changed everything we did. Um, when we went, because we went to sixty-day seasons, so we we had to keep food. We we need as we need the hunting be as good on the last day as it is on the first day, and that's you got to have food. So we had to really scatter our food sources or resources to be able to last that long. And then uh, and then with the uh, more soil being able to manipulate more soil, um, that was a huge change for us. And so we went to a lot more and more soil. Uh, uh, it was much more economical to grow than corn. Uh, the seed sources and everything we have, you know, every ground, we, every acre of dirt we have, we just have to manipulate it in such a way to get a, a good response to it, um, disturb it. And, um, and then we can manipulate that. You know, we can roll it or burn it, whatever we want to, to, to enhance it for, for waterfowl use. Uh, all perfectly legal. I mean, we're, we're not going to do anything illegal. Um, well, and like for us, George, and I'm not sure what you guys protections like, but like for us, part of the reason, like on our track, we've got 800 acres that we manage there as one piece with mm -hmm. our neighbors and, and uh, we're, we're largely unprotected from, uh, from floods. So, you know, mm -hmm. the last thing we want to be is too heavy on corn, because if you get August, September or late July flood, you yeah, got nothing, you tough. know? So, so, you know, our moist soil plants, or an insurance policy for us, you know, because they're probably going to have something, even if we get a, a pretty big flood. And so, you know, that's well, they've, another they've part of the value. Floods, right. I mean, they've evolved over floods and droughts and, and things, and, you know, the moist soil, the stuff that's in the ground. That's why it's there. Um, yeah. They're able to handle that. Um, yeah. Again, the diversity of it. Um, and, and I know there's, a, you know, especially up in St. Charles County and those areas, there's a lot, a lot of corn that's just solid corn. And they think they've got to have corn. Uh, corn is important, but so is the other, the other aspects. The other food is very important to the health of the duck. Well, you know, I'm I I live in St. Charles County, and what happens when you have that much flooded corn is you drive your ducks to be nocturnal that much quicker. Right. And you know, a lot of these places around here that are all corn, they can only kill a duck on a weathery, rainy, blowy day, and if it's not, they're going to see them at, at twilight but they're not going to see them during the day and and i think that uh 
you know, if you want to make your ducks nocturnal, have a lot of flooded corn. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That's why they're still here. And they, they, yeah. they have figured us out and they're going to, they're going to survive. Uh, I'm sure you remember when 1999, when the robo duck was introduced and how stupid oh, yeah. birds were. It didn't take them a couple of years to figure that out. You know, it's not like they went yeah. to the duck school. Said, "Do not do this." Yeah, they figured it out, and they fought. Yes. That was uh, that. Uh, that's something that you, know, you and I in our career probably never ever ever see again happen. But it did, and it and it's good it happened that that they're that able to adapt or, or go nocturnal when they need to. I know the hunters don't like that, but that's why they're here. Well, I remember when I first got out of vet school, and I've told Joe this story a million times, but there was no field duck hunting back then. Like, you know, you could yeah. walk up and knock on anyone's door, and if you asked them if you could go duck hunt, they didn't even know what you were talking about because nobody had ever hunted a duck in a field. I mean, you know, they you'd see them out there, but, but you'd have to go try and kill them on the river or somewhere yeah. where there was water, and there were no layout blinds back then, there were no spinners back then, and there was no field hunting, so... Think of all the ducks that had free reign and no negative experiences and, and had free use of the fields. And now that's just another interaction, right? That they're just getting pressure there where they used to have safe haven. Sure. And so I think it makes them smarter across the board. Sure, they figured out robo ducks, but those interactions also make them smarter to blind, smarter what plastic looks like, smarter what paint looks like smarter to everything and, and it's just a it's a smarter duck that we hunt nowadays especially if you get poor production yeah especially if you have if you if you got a bunch of old ones <laughs> you got you need some young dumb ones uh, yeah oh I, the blinds that we used to use in the 80s stand-up cane blinds out in the middle of the field you couldn't ever kill it we used to kill limits out of them. you couldn't kill a duck out of those damn things now if you like to edit on it it'd just be one dumb one that happened to fly over you know they just they, you're right. They've evolved. They've changed. And thank goodness they have. When, when right. here, where the White River is about 30 miles to our east, and when the when the floods come and the White River floods, those birds pick up out of the prairie here. They go straight over there to that rising water. Oh, that's horrible. We don't need it. Well, you know, if they didn't do that, we wouldn't have them today. That's what they're supposed to do. That right. they got to go those new resources. They're going to go that rising water. And then guess what? When the water goes down, they come back. It's, it's how they work and thank goodness they work that way because otherwise we wouldn't they wouldn't be here if They're it was, like, if it was up to us if it was up to us to make all the decisions we'd have ruined it long ago we oh, were, we were, we've we ruined were, everything else we have ruined everything <laughs> else uh george your, your area down there that that slash i'm not trying to call it the slash but whatever that big through your property it looks like there's a big old I don't know what you want to call it, big old slough oxbow type thing on the yeah. maybe the, the east side of something. Is that is that a certain is that a certain body of water? Or is that just something? yeah? That's just Benson Lake. You got a lot of these. You know, we're sitting in this. We're we're if you go, it's just a mile and a half, two miles to the east. You'll be up on what's called the Grand Prairie, and so we're we're down in the uh, the bottoms, the trans transition zone where the water's headed. It was coming off the prairie uh, to Biomita. And so, so you, one time the Arkansas river came through here. And so you have a lot of these horseshoe, big, big oxbow lakes that have been formed. Uh, I'm sure y'all got the same thing in your bottom, your bottoms up there. So that's one of those, at least a big uh, oxbow lake. 
uh, you know, great gadwall hose, you know, great get lots hose a lot of gadwalls. Uh, we use it for irrigation, and, uh, and then we have you know inside that uh, that's an island that you're looking at. Inside that we've got a yeah. got a couple of green. We got five green tree reservoirs on this property, so we we don't flood them all at the same time. We mix and match. We're still pumping. We don't we don't start anything until after November first, and we're still pumping the last week of the season. We're still moving. Some of these, we're this land's a little bit is a little bit higher, about ten feet higher than than our land to the south, fifteen miles south of here, where where I found it as a sixty when I was a sixteen year old kid, where the water backed up into it. So that's more of a backwater swamp area. Where this is more of the headwater, and so you have more uh, swells and uh, sloughs and ridges here. And on these ridges, you have a different tree. You have a you have a, it's a red oak bottomland tree, but it's a cherry bark oak. You won't see any cherry bark oak 15 miles south of here in the bottomlands. So it's only in those ridges. So we don't put any water. And those ridges may be 25 to 50 yards wide, maybe. You know, pretty narrow. And But we won't flash any water up there until the last couple of weeks of the season. Trying to, trying to emulate Mother Nature uh, as much as we can. She might not have flashed them every few years up there, but we're not leaving it up there very long. We're just hitting it. It's amazing how quickly those birds respond to that new water and that new resource. It, and and we that's when we go into the cherry bark over the last couple of weeks of the season. And it's consistent every year they respond to it. If we have if we have a good acre crop. Do do you have a spot on your property? Um again, probably a ridiculous question, but do you have a because let me just preface this by saying I and I don't, I mean, he has hunted them more than I have, and I've hunted them some, but uh, on day in day out but the, the two of us hunt pretty much every day that well every day we can and that's most days um we don't ever really spend any time in a green tree reservoir it's just not like that up here you know not to yeah. say that some couldn't be made but the layout of our ground is just not conducive to that's right you know obviously and that's why you know it's, it's not up here but my question is i it looks as though you've got a lot of timber do you mm -hmm. leave some of that woods as a refuge or do you strategically oh, yeah. just move it around and, and hunt all over the place and just kind of leave the birds a spot or is there a specific refuge that you've got for them? Well, there is a refuge of, of uh, back in the south part of this property, 206 acres. There's uh, four different compartments that we planted CRP back in 2006 containerized trees. Those, those oak trees now are about 50 feet tall. Uh, we don't hunt any of that and they, they spend the night in there. That's where they spend the night. And all mallards, almost 100% mallards. Then the green tree reservoirs surround that. And then our open fields go to the north of that, about another 600 acres to the north of that. So uh, now inside the green tree reservoirs, we have just designated areas that we hunt and stay. And we don't go roam in the woods. We, we've got certain spots that we hunt that we, you know, certain blind, and we, uh, we, uh, most of our hunters in blinds for safety's sake, for safety reasons. They're, they're, uh, they've got a little, uh, sort of like a, 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 uh, a cage built in where you can't swing too far right or left. We, the goal of those blinds is to have maximum concealment, concealment, but also maximum enjoyment for the hunter. And that's what we try to do. You know, every guide would want you just to, uh, just sit down, shut up, and I'll tell you when to shoot. <laughs> I mean, so we, but we want the hunter, uh, now what we call them the contributor, to be able to get the maximum enjoyment out of watching the birds work. I mean, that's 
to all of us that hunt, that's that's the fun part, watching these birds hunt, watch them come in, um, watch them, do, and then and then kill them. So we try to design those blinds in a way we can have them concealed. Safety is always number one. Everybody likes to get around trees. A lot of people like to get out trees. Those are that's good if you got really experienced hunters that know how to number one be safe and how to hide. I mean, a lot of times when you're hunting in the bottom green tree reservoir and you're standing by a tree, you don't look at the ducks. You look at the reflection in the water at the ducks to see where they are or look at your dog. You know. And, and I'm not telling you anything here because you already know this a hundred times more than I do, but it's one thing on a sunny day, but you get a cloudy day, man, you, you need to be in a blind. I mean, the, yeah. the hunters need to be in a blind. Yep, absolutely right. And And it's just... Again, at the end of the day, um, they have a the success rate's much higher. You know, success on, on harvest birds, but also what they see and what they do. And, and that's why, I mean, so many of our hunters might only hunt two days a year when they're here. That might be the only two days they duck hunt. They're 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 more fluent group that that are, uh, you know, they're doing. Uh, business with their clientele, whatever it is. It, we, we don't have that dying wool. Got to kill a duck hunter. Got to kill a duck. I mean, I, I got rid of those a long time ago because either you got to stop at the limit, right, or you're going to have a bad day. And and odds are the, those folks aren't going to be happy. I'm not doing this for money. I'm doing this because it's my passion. And I want people to appreciate and enjoy my passion. And if it's got to, if you got to kill a duck, man, I, I'll give you another place to go where, you know. Yeah. I, you know and I, best of luck to you. <laughs> yeah, best of luck to you. So, George, and, well, how did you start? How did you, I want to get into that? I, I I wanted to ask that, but I've kind of got caught up listening. How did you start Five Oaks, the guiding operation? Well, I started that because my mother's my boss when I started this operation. Uh, it's, it's her father that had the land, like I said earlier. And, and so my mother, my mother, uh, I had to justify my mother to be able to duck hunt during the wintertime. She really didn't like this duck hunt stuff, you know, because it's money coming out, nothing coming in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't doing anything for her. Uh, my dad enjoyed it, but we only had one rice field that we ever hunted. So the cost of putting the rice pit in was just a few hundred dollars and the flood, it was very little. So, before I started Five Oaks, we weren't spending a whole lot of money on ducks. Um, I knew that had to change. And the only way I could justify it was to start a business at it. And I was fortunate the year I started this. I, well, I just backed into buying this duck lodge called the Memphis Furniture Company owned in 1983. I had built a green tree reservoir uh, on our property that my mother and I gave a sister and me. And so I did build the green tree reservoir in 82. Uh, Memphis Furniture Company fortunately needed a place to hunt in 1982. They had lost their lease to Jerry Jones, who owns the Dallas Cowboys. He, he had leased the place and wanted to buy the lodge. When he couldn't buy the lodge, he went across the street and built the same exact lodge. And Jerry and I have become great friends since then because of that. But the first year, because of my, I played tennis at Memphis State, uh, a good friend of mine knew the people there that owned the furniture company. And so what leased it to, I bought them, I leased them the, the, excuse me, I leased them the land in 82. They owned the lodge. The very next year, they had to sell the lodge. They lost their, their Sears account or something. And so I bought the lodge without any idea 
or what I was going to do. I was just trying to find some corporate guy to come in to help me make the payment on it. Um, and I met Herman Taylor Jr. from Natchitoches, Louisiana. He had a beautiful place called Little Pecan Island down in southwest Louisiana. He'd been president of Ducks Unlimited in 1972 and 73. The, 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 Mr. Taylor understood habitat. He understood the importance of the wintering grounds. In fact, he single-handedly got Ducks Unlimited USA program started. Jeff Sharan, who you mentioned a few minutes ago, he and I both are disciples of Herman Taylor. Um, the man was brilliant in what he, how he, he just understood. He unfortunately died in 1988, so I was only around about four, four and a half years. But he made a, a, a incredible impression on me. And so he saw the potential of the properties that we had to develop. And he introduced me to some of the corporate people that could help me get to there. What, what I didn't realize is how much I was going to enjoy the um, the hospitality side of the business. I really have enjoyed building that on the lodge and making controlling everything that we can control, uh, making sure the, the 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 food is the best you can have. The the, the bar better be have what the, they want to drink. The beds better be is most comfortable beds they've ever slept in at any Four Seasons Hotel or Ritz-Carlton. The place better be impeccable. The service better be perfect. Uh, the trucks, the Suburbans better work. The boats better work. The, you know, all the things that you can control, control them because you can't control the weather. And 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 I really enjoyed that side, the challenge of doing that. And uh, I used to take my girls when they were young to Walt Disney World every year. I mean, every fall we'd go. And I was always amazed at how they make that place work every day and how they make you feel every day when you're there. And and I wanted to try to emulate that here as much as I could. And, and that inspired me. I got like Walt Disney. Um, so anyway, I say all that. That's kind of how I got in the business. And 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 that now, uh, you know, when you get to my age, I, I want to make sure it continues on. And that's why I've, uh, I spent a lot of time studying and, and worried about this and uh, praying about it. And that's why I've started this 501c3 public charity. Um, if it's going to stay on, it needs to be managed by an independent board of directors that that has the mission is to maintain the habitat and to not maintain it, but to improve it, to expand it, and to continue working at it. But you got to have contributors to make it happen. And that's what we got to do. We got So we got to keep the hospitality side of the business. We got to keep the education programs. We started education programs with fourth graders. We've got graduate certificate programs. We've got a program at the University of Arkansas at Monticello and the Forestry School doing bottomland hardwood research. We've got in the Division of Ag. Um, so we, we've got a multitude of, of programs now going on that we can do because we're a public charity that we could never do before. Yeah, and yeah, I'm just a volunteer. I love it. It has inspired me working with these young people. Um, and, and watching their passion and their brilliance and how they want to learn and make it better. Well, uh, so you're in a, exciting. It, you're, you're fortunate to be in so it, what I'm taking away from what you're saying is you're fortunate. You feel fortunate to be able to work with the resource and the properties and some of this outreach stuff you're, you're viewing like, like, as you said, this isn't about money. You're doing this. You're, you're driven by a, by the resource and by, I love for what you're doing. You know, that's, it's not typical to, to see that, you know, um, and that's probably what makes you, what makes you so 
passionate about it because if you're driven by money, you know, I don't know if there's a way that you could have, that you could keep the same amount of passion. You know I mean? It's hard to, it's hard to keep that fire burning when it's only about money, you know? And so what you're doing, you can't make enough of it. The amount of what these land is worth, my return on that set is non-existent, right? I actually pay to own the land. So I got to figure out a different model because that's not going to continue with the next generation that might not be willing to take money. They might rather have a lake house in Hot Springs or something else as, as opposed to this. And when that happens, who loses? The resource does. The resource. Yeah. And, and I went through this with a, with a kind of a family breakup with my sister. And I realized probably what would have happened if uh, it would have, if some, if she or somebody else, we went to a public auction, it's all well documented, that a group would have bought this and they, the odds of them managing it like we are doing it was probably slim to none. Zero. Yeah. And so I need to make sure if I spent my whole professional career trying to do this, if I want this to make sure it, that does not go in vain. And, and that's not just here, but also with Arkansas Game and Fish Commission and Ducks Unlimited, which are both volunteer positions. I would, I got to make sure that this is set up right to go on for a hundred plus years. Oh. And, and it's up to me. No, it's no, I'm the only one that can make that happen. So, okay. so you touched on that, George, and I don't want to get into anything that's, you know, going to be a pain in the ass to talk about, but, but if you can basically say, I mean, and I, I obviously don't, I'm not abreast of all the details of the situation, but, but as you know, a lot of our listeners can probably relate to the fact of, you know, when, when a farm, especially a farm, but a farm or a business or whatever else sells, you know, people look at people with property or a business or whatever, and they think, oh man, those kids are, those kids are set up so good and blah, blah, blah. And they got, they're on easy street. You know, sometimes I just look around at, I look around at, you know, things that I'm a part of and it's like, well, how is that actually going to go when the next generation gets it? I mean, yes, yes, we're going to get it, but you know, not everybody might feel the same way that I feel about this property or this business or this house or this initiative or this organization. So basically you, it sounds as though you guys had an amazing asset and, and do have an amazing asset. You almost had to, for lack of a better term, not only fight to preserve the asset, but then fight to keep it and fight to get it. So you basically, George, you cared enough about it. Correct me if I'm wrong. You and some family members had some disagreements and you actually had to basically buy your land back in order to operate it, in order to operate it for a non-profit? In a, in a public auction, in a federally court-ordered public auctions inside of five of Anybody in the world could have bought this place. And we had that big guy out of St. Louis came down for it. We had people from all over calling in. It was a, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, yeah, you're right. I had to fight for it. And uh, I had to figure out a way, I had to figure out a model to do it. You know, I had to, I had to figure out what, what, what I couldn't keep it all. I knew that. Um, Cause you just, you just can't make enough off the farmland to justify any, the, I couldn't make the interest payment. It just doesn't, doesn't pay enough. Um, so it, it, it was something that was unfortunate but it actually turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me. And because they allow me, I doubt my sister and I would have ever agreed to do what we're doing today, to be able to do, move this into a public charity and to move it the way that we're going. Um, 
maybe would have, maybe wouldn't, but we didn't have a chance to, to do it. But but I don't have, the nice thing is I don't have to try to sell it to her. It's and the only advice I'd give to people uh, they've gone through. And, I, and, I, and because it was so public, I had a lot of people talk to me about it, whatever their situation was. Plan ahead. Get get uh, professionals to help you plan. Figure out what you want, because and then plan it, and then follow your plan. And because you can't start soon enough, the plan that we're starting right now was started uh, back in 1989 through state plan. And the reason I'm able to do stuff because I had fantastic legal representation and people that we look for long enough ahead. And and um, it, it, otherwise, you're just depending on luck and, and human nature is such that you're right. You just said it. Might not have the same passion. Probably won't have the same passion that that I have or that you have for your place. So if you want to make sure it goes on, or or, or go ahead and sell it to somebody, yeah, you just you need to. Do, if you just do it and and think that everybody's going, it's going to work out for everybody, uh, it's too many unknowns. You don't know who who's who's going who they're going to marry, who's your children going to marry, who the kids going to be, who they you know. It's just too many other factors that come into play because you can't. It is the model's not set up to run a duck hunting it is make money if you own, if you got to own the land. It's just the value of the land's too much. The return part of what I do now is commercial real estate. I mean, I, we, we look at cap rates all day long. I mean, I, there, there's a negative cap rate on this place, you know. So I've got to come up with a new model to make sure it stinks. And that's what I'm working on. Well, okay. Let me ask you a question about the mindset, though, because as an athlete, you know, former athlete that you were, and you obviously got some competitive spirit there, but I don't care what it is. And I know this about some of my places and I obviously you feel the same way, but when you're going in and looking down the barrel of maybe not having your place, you know, or maybe not being able to afford to keep your place or, you know, not keep it all. Or, you know, I'm sure when you went into it, George, you were like, all right, I've got to keep, here are the properties that I want to keep. Yeah. What mindset did you take into that auction? I mean, you had to be nervous as could be, but was your mindset just like, listen, I'm going to get these places if at all possible and I'll do whatever I have to. I mean, I'm sure you're dealing against some big hitters. Well, yeah, you don't, even, yeah, you really don't know who all is out there you're dealing with, but there, there was a big one in St. Louis that if he, if he wanted it, it would have been his. Um, fortunately, he didn't raise his hand at the auction. His uh, name wasn't Ira McCauley. I can tell you that. It wasn't our, uh, but, I, I can see I missed some good stuff while I was uh, dealing with that dog, but I'm happy to be back with y'all. Yeah, yeah, hope the dog's okay. Um, yeah, the mindset was, uh, it was, uh, yes, I feel like I earned the right to keep it. Um, got up early that morning, about five that morning. It was an icy, snowy day, and I got my dog out. We just went walking. And I just got myself kind of, just like I did before I won the Arkansas State Championship in 1980. You know, it, it's like it is the competitive side in you. But I also also realized I was at it. I could only do what I could do. And if I didn't, if I didn't, if I was not successful at the auction, then I had my friends I made. I had the reputation I had gained. The knowledge I had gained, the experiences I had, nobody, those were mine. Those, those, I had made those. Those were mine. 
And the worst case was I was just going to walk away. My, the only I owned by myself was the house across the street. I told my wife, I said, we'll, we'll sell the house because I'm not going to sit here and watch somebody else. <laughs> oh, God, no. Uh, that was not good for my health. And we'll just go someplace else, start over. I, I don't I don't have to have a lot. I mean, I had I'd already been felt like I was already so successful and so fortunate to be able to do what I've done. I mean, I just I'd already I'd already hit the lottery. And so at the same time, uh you know, my best friend's wife is down of brain cancer. And he put that in perspective. And she was my wife's best friend, and she ended up dying. During that period of time, we were having dinner with him once a week. There was nothing my friend Alan could do for his wife. Nothing. There was the outcome was already determined. It was going to be bad, and and that was a bad. My my issue, well, I can walk away with a bunch of money and go do something else. You know, still have my wife, still have my family. It was a. It really put things in perspective to going through that. Man, that so that, mental. That, I was ready. Mentally that morning, I was ready uh, to do what I had to do. And if it didn't work, it didn't work. But I tell you, I didn't. I, 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 I had to, I had to put it all on the table to get. I had to. I, I was not going to. You know, parable. You know, old story of Matthew about splitting the baby. I was not going to split the baby. And you, but when you got it bought, like when it the so so was the auction. Were you the only bidder, George, or was there some? Oh, oh no, there was, there were a lot of people bidding. And uh, no, I was not the only bidder. When you got that though, when you that had to be like a freaking. I know, I know you paid for it and all that, but that had to be a sigh of relief. Like, uh, I mean, that had to feel awesome. It 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 was. I compare it to when I won the state championship. My dad had won that tournament nine times. It was the only tournament he would always want me to win. He never told me that, but I could just feel the pressure. And it was my last tournament I was ever playing as a, because the next week I was starting over here. You know, tennis, any athlete, golf, you've got to practice two or three hours every day or you lose, you lose your edge. And so I graduated in May. This is late August of 1980. Hotter, you know, it was 100 degrees every day. That's, um, and now I'll never forget the relief when I won that thing. I about, about choked and blew it, but I, I won it. And just the relief, and I just did that, and I, I raised my hands. I did the same thing, and my lawyer, who uh, his grandson plays tight end for New England, he big old man. He just bear he because we had gone through so much. He just picked me up and bear hugged me as tight as you could do. It was an incredible feeling. It really was. That's awesome. Good for you, man. That's yeah. awesome. I just can only yeah. I can only imagine the the roller coaster ride you'd have gone on through that, and then. And then to be able to have it now, and it has to be a good feeling that how much you know money was on the line there, and how much you had to give to get, and all that, and now to turn around and put it in a five hundred one c three, like I mean, you really have got the last laugh on that deal. That's awesome. Yeah, well, it's all because of the love of ducks and and what so many people had done to help us get to where we are. Um, you know, my mom and dad they died. Our parents died ten days apart in two thousand seven. And you know they would they would not have been yeah well it wouldn't have happened if they were still alive they never would have that that process never would have started but I got a feeling they're both and, and my sister and I are fine now we're brother and sister came to both my daughter's wedding you know we're we're good um, we just not everybody's uh, if you're not 
if you don't have the same philosophy, you should never be in business together or marriage together or print. It just doesn't work. You got to have the same philosophical beliefs, whatever it is, right? And just, you got to have that. And, and that's why I want to make sure my children, my three girls never have to go through what I did. I saw my mother and her two sisters go through the same thing, same thing. Never dream my sister and I would go through it, but it happened. It's just the human nature side of it. I don't blame my sister for it. Um, it's just, we just had difference of opinions. And unfortunately we couldn't find a, a, a good enough solution. She got, hey, one thing about it, she got, she got the market price that day for her land. There's no question. She could never say she didn't get the market price. That was the price that day. And I bet 2023, uh, that market value would be worth a whole lot more than it was when, when that happened. Yeah, it was 2015. Um, it was pretty high. You know, it, it flattened out for a while. Um, and it's just now really starting to come back up. But um, no, it wasn't. I, 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 I didn't steal it. <laughs> it was it was a full boat. But it was, but you know, it was worth it to me. And that's why I had to sell some of the properties. And I and I was able to get a really nice price for some of the properties back then when I sold them to keep what I had. Well, I'm sure that you remember this and know this, but but it was a huge deal. It was I had a bunch of people, some of which don't even duck hunt and just know that I duck hunt, that were emailing me articles and things about what happened there and and all of that and you know, it was it was major national news, really. It really well, was. Yeah, I was president of Ducks Unlimited at the time, and I'm sorry Ducks Unlimited ever got drug into it because of my association with Ducks Unlimited, because Ducks Unlimited had nothing, you know, directly to do with this at all. But um, but again, it, it all worked out. Uh, I, my sister, I, I love my sister, always will. It just worked out. You know, it could it could have been easier. <laughs> but yeah. you know, it wasn't in the cards. Uh, but it all worked out. It worked out. And at the end of the day, uh, the Ducks were the winners. You know, the, du and the Ducks won. And now we're going to make sure that that continues on. I'm excited about my son-in-law uh, is moving back here to start working as my successor. So I get my succession plan in place. My daughter's already still helping me. He'll be answering to a board of uh, independent board of directors. Yeah. So we will separate the family uh and over, over time uh, that land will will start transferring to uh, the 501c3 so you know and that's that's, that's that's awesome and that's a unique that's a unique um setup honestly i mean it's cool uh it's just cool how how unique that is george what gave you i don't want to i don't want you to have the you you've gone through a lot here and told us a lot of cool stuff but i don't want you to have to get into a long drawn out thing about it but just what what gave you the idea um was that something that you came up with was that something your lawyer helped you come know. up with? i don't know if i've ever had original idea in my life um <laughs> you know uh max mcgraw foundation up in chicago the way they manage theirs that's interesting i don't know if you're familiar with that uh charlie potter uh they have an interesting operation there's some other uh, operations that the Noble Foundation in, in Oklahoma, uh, they're not a hunting operation, but they're, uh, Mr. Noble started that and how they got it started. I, I, I hired a consultant out of uh, Alabama that helped me. Uh, I just kind of sent him on a, a whirlwind from California. To, I, I just say, I want you to go see all these different people. And we were trying to figure out, we just took as much information as we could. 
And I just started, you know, dreaming about it um, and figure out, praying about it and how we could do it. Never dreamed my son-in-law, I would be bringing him. That just kind of happened over the last year. They got, they met it. They met at Five Oaks. Uh, his father, uh, Gavan Horner, worked for us at Ducks Unlimited. He was head of our technology. He's from Helen, Arkansas, originally. Um, uh, my, they were my son-in-law was raised in Memphis. Brilliant, super. If I had to go pick my perfect son-in-law, it's him. It's just a really wonderful guy. And uh, he's given up. He would have been made partner this at the end of this year at the law firm. So he's given up a lot to come do this. It's a risk for him. Uh, it's not a lot. You know, it's not a locked-in deal. It's going to work. There's no lock-in. There's nothing. I like that it's it's risk. You know, it makes you, you know, there's there's no nothing guaranteed. And again, he'll be answering to the independent board of directors. Um, I got a great board of directors. Dale Hall is one of my board members, former CEO of Ducks Unlimited, Ted Dickey, a business partner. Um we've got another young man here that we've hired to be the director of our, our institute, Dr. Ryan Askren uh, from Iowa. He uh, is a postdoc. Uh, under Dr. Doug Osborne, he's thirty. Both these young men are thirty-three years old. They're they're strong Christian beliefs. Great, just the right kind of people to take this to a whole nother level, so we can start training uh, the next generation of biologists, so they can be professional land managers. We're going to reach out to the. We've already started a fourth grade program, trying to get out in the schools. We need to we need to figure out you know, that skin color should not make a difference if you're a biologist. For some reason, we have just not attracted um, the African American community in this field. We're at Game of Fish or Doug Salimba, wherever you are. We have a hard time getting uh, minorities engaged. Well, we got to start them young. They, they don't get they're not they're not introduced to it. So one of our challenges is try to do that. We you know we're we want the best and brightest in this game uh, to help us figure out how we're going to help. After we're hour and hour long gone, how we figure all this out and keep going, and and you got to find people that want to live here, on out here in the in where nobody else wants to live. You know, there's there's not. I don't think we're we're down about seventeen thousand people in this county now. Yeah, it's, you got to want to be out here. I, I I will always go. The secret of my success is is living here on the property. Um, where I'm here all the time with it and weekends after hour, it's, it's, you know, I feel it, I taste it, I touch it every day. There, there is no after hours for you. It's, 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 it's not even work. Right. Right. It's just, it's just, right. It's just what you do. Just what I do. So, so George, I want to hit, cause, cause I'm interested, you know, like where, where I'm interested in, like, I would love to, you know, I'd love to know, Five Oaks, obviously, it's a it's a it's a technically a not for profit, but it's run like a very successful business. Everyone that I've talked to that's ever had anything to do with it has put it on the top level of of you know places that you can go hunt in Arkansas. And and I want you to hit on a little bit when a guy comes to Five Oaks to hunt, what is that like? Uh, what is that experience like? And, and I've got a couple of questions that center around that, that are, some of our listeners have asked, but, but describe the experience at five Oaks, the, the ideal experience, you know, the weather's good. Then you get there and it's a beautiful fall stretch that you've got booked. What, what does that experience look like from when a guy arrives to when he leaves? Yeah. Well, we don't, nobody stays more than three days. Everybody needs to go home after three days. First of all, 
Uh, so it's you know, the Little Rock groups, local groups are usually one days. Uh, the, most groups are two days. So, you know, they'll come in on a, a Monday afternoon after three o'clock and they'll leave after brunch on Wednesday. Um, so they get here. We got one host. That's all we do. It's all or nothing in the lodge. We now have gone because of the pandemic, we went to one person per room and we've stayed that. We actually took the twin beds out and we got queens in every bedroom. So we have 10 bedrooms. Everybody's got a private bath. Everybody's got a private bed. So we've really changed that model. So we've actually decreased the amount of people that we're hunting, which is just, it helps the, the pressure, less pressure. So we're able to get more a quality experience. All right, so you get here uh, anytime after three o'clock. We got skeet ranges open. We love for people to get out and shoot some, some skeet before. Gives us an idea of who can who can shoot, who can't. Make sure everybody knows which hand the gun to hold. <clears throat> but uh, but may, we have almost well as far as repeat. I mean, I, last year I had two days that opened up, and that was it. I had one one new guest last year uh, from Kansas City. Um, <clears throat> That's it. So we have the same people every year. So once they get in, they know the drill. Everybody knows the routine. They know the drill. They know how we work. Uh, you know, uh, dinner's at seven o'clock. It's their table, not my table. I go home. I'm over here, make sure everybody's, you know, we, we welcome everybody. It's, it is the host lodge. It is literally their lodge. I work and the staff works for that host. Everything's decided. All the host has to decide before they get here. One thing is, What's your salad, entree, and dessert you want for each each night of your meal? And the only other thing they got to decide is who's going to hunt with whom. And then we only deal with one person, just the host on that every night. Uh, at six o'clock, we'll get around the whiteboard with the head guide, whoever's been out scouting. And they decide, okay, we got a good timber spot. We need a little bit better quality hunter here. This we don't need. We want to make sure we match up the hunter to the to the place they go. So we it's all about creating, making sure. You create the create the odds for that experience to be as 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 great as it can be. Now with our graduate certificate program, we have we actually try to we brought the students in. These are college uh, graduate students that are working on a kind of a master's program with our professional guide along with the student with maybe just two hunters. And so we've got the scientists going with the hunter, so we have that interaction. Um, so they can ask the questions if it's slow or how does this work? Why do y'all do this? A lot of our 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 guests and our hunter, everybody you have the host, then everybody the host bring are their guests, and that's how we refer to everybody. So the host and the guest, a lot of these folks have lots of great questions. They're very successful business people. They want to know how you do it, and they're now that they're contributors, they're actually investors into the science, investing into what we're doing. They want to know we. They always have been. It's just been through us. Now I'm making them. They're getting the benefit of the tax deduction. Um, and so, but that's that's what I feel like is going to be our success in the long haul, is having these folks uh, doing this. So the, the more that we can, the more research, the more we can do habitat work, theoretically, the hunting should get better and better and better and more consistent, which should lead to more contributions and, and should make, the, make it more successful as we go forward. So anyway, they come through. It's all about experience. We're gonna make sure we, when we got the new beds, we got the bed, the best mattresses that we can find, with the best sheets that we can find, the best pillows. We've got to make sure the the, the right liquor is involved. We do whatever they got to do. A lot of these guys bring their own wines. We 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 serve um, 
uh, decoy or, or um, uh, the other one that's, that's you know like decoy that, that, that the one right above it. Um, uh, we make sure we got professional uh, certified executive chefs at night, primarily prime cuts of beef, fresh fish, those kind of things. Uh, we got a chef that comes over, primarily cooks the breakfast. We got you know, we just make sure everything is as comfortable. We can control everything. All our all our suburbans are detailed every day. All the boats are detailed and refilled. The Argos all washed every day, and so everything is maintained on a daily basis. I get again. I, I go back to Walt Walt Disney World and what I've watched experience with my kids go every year, watching how they do the business and how they manage and how they train people. Uh, that was always inspiring to me. Uh, to, you know, I say if they could do that place, sure, like I run a little duck lodge. Um, so that's that's the goal. Is try to do it now because that we converted this. Uh, I'm hoping these, you know, and we we need the next generation of, of contributors to make this thing go. Um, you know, we already we've already you know after this will be our 40th year. So you imagine how many uh, older members, of people we've already lost that aren't aren't around anymore. Or can't hunt anymore. So we got to continue filling that pipeline from the backside and finding the people that believe in what we're doing. Again, if it's just about killing. Hit the wrong spot. It's not a big kill. It's so, about the. I mean, to me, that's that sounds amazing. I are detailing rangers every day. That sounds like Habitat Flats and Locust Grove Duck Farm. Those some bitches ain't been detailed since. <laughs> I are your old Yamaha ain't been detailed in a while. Uh, uh, it's been detailed, but not by me, by the mice. A full, full, <laughs> full military detail breakdown every morning trying to get the thing to run. Uh, George, let me just give you a, 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 a most mornings when we're headed to the blind, I got my head stuck out the door because I can't see through the windshield. You can't beat it, George. They got a $10 million duck farm and a piece of freaking plexiglass that nobody can <laughs> see through. No, the Yamaha doesn't even have a windshield. Uh, but George, so here's a couple questions. I know you got stuff going on and I don't want to keep you all day, but yeah, I, I do have to run here in a minute. But let me ask you like two quick questions and then we'll wrap it up. Um, yeah. This, we had several of them about, about green tree reservoirs. Um, yeah. Do you, do you, are you a proponent or a strong proponent of the forestry mulching that you see some of these guys doing in these green tree reservoirs? We've been doing it about 20 years. You know, I, I, I would compare it. I mean, you ever been to Thomasville, Georgia, and see how they manage their the, the, those beautiful plantations with fire? We can't run fire through hardwoods. We're going to really, we'll, we'll hurt them. We'll do a lot more damage than good. So that, to me, is that is kind of our 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 fire, if you will, is the mulching. You just got to make sure you got somebody who knows what the hell they're doing on it, because you can really you can you can get rid of a lot of really good young oak trees that are coming up. Uh, somebody doesn't know the difference. But it needs to be done. I, I would always recommend a, a you know a forester biologist or somebody uh, that they they that they get to to help them lay it out correctly. Uh, we're we've got some experiments going on that Sitka Gear is sponsoring on our property. We're we're doing a lot of variable cut variable retention cut because we're trying to manage sunlight on the bottom on the forest floor. Um, when we get that herbaceous layer and get better re regeneration and we've also we're doing uh, uh containerized trees and bare root seedlings as well trying to emulate what we at some point in time in the Balmeda or these other wmas that they're going to be doing once they get the uh get get all their drainage issues fixed and that we can bring these trees back 
So Safety Gear has been great to help us sponsor that research, working with the University of Arkansas Monticello, which is our only forestry school that we have in Arkansas Division of Ag. So it, it's all about managing sunlight. Is that what we talk in first? If, and the hardest thing we see getting people to, to do, Joe, is cut a tree. It just, people just don't inherently like to cut a tree, but you got to yeah. cut trees to get sunlight. Otherwise you just have this old growth forest and just, there's nothing underneath and, 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 and we have no, no next generation coming at all. And at some point you'll have a catastrophic failure. And we, I think we've all been, and maybe not you, but I, I know me, like I do a lot of real estate marketing. And when I go on the, some of these properties, you look and you're like, God, look at these awesome big ass trees. This is just awesome. And boy, how beautiful it looks like a park in here. Well, you know, sometimes that's not what you want. You know, you might, you might, from the ground level, it looks cool, but sometimes, you know, sometimes that's probably teetering on the edge of catastrophe. Like you're well, yeah, well, it's, it's, again, it's the diversity. You don't want it all to be the same. We got to have those thick areas. Uh, that's where the pair bonding is going on, especially in January. Y'all probably don't see it up there like we see it here in January, but that's where they're getting their, they're creating their bond and they get, you'll see the, you'll see the, the hen be sitting there eating and getting, you know, eating the calcium, eating the, eating what she needs. And that, that old Drake's gardener, you know, and, and that's when, you know, you'll, you'll hear the term they got in hole shot. Well, they really, they probably haven't been shot a hole shot, but they're also, they're going into the thickest areas. We see it every year. They go into the thicket areas because that's where they want to go. That that's in their nature. When they get to January, that's where they got to get, get right. ready to get back. So you need that. It's that diversity of habitat. Who knows what the magic number is? I think we just kind of shoot for a 50 50. Uh, but but it's the disturbance and continue with the disturbance is also the key. You know, I mean, after they have a hurricane on the Gulf Coast, you know, the duck hunting gets better. You know, you know, it's just that nature responds to disturbance. And, it's and, and it doesn't it doesn't matter if it's a turkey, a deer or a duck, you yeah. know, same thing. Like where I live, it's all you can see 300 yards through the woods and it's beautiful. But good luck to him, hen raising a nest there, pulling off her pole right. because there's nowhere for him to hide. That's and exactly uh, right. Joe, Joe's a huge deer hunter, and he knows the importance of, of you know, hinge cutting and all that stuff. Not everywhere, but in spots where it, you know they can have some of this, have some of that. Yeah. Now we're we're uh, here. We're man part of our research here is managing turkey. I mean, it's it's a holistic management process. What's good for the deer uh, it's good for the turkeys good for the duck i mean it's good for all the wildlife in fact we got some uh turkey guys here today on the property looking at doing uh letting us do some research for them so it's it's managing these woods on a holistic basis for what's best for the natural resources maybe not best for us you know when we're flooding the woods you know we used to flood for our boat motors so we can get our boats around well shit that's too that's too deep for a duck you know, we got to keep it shallow I mean, as we can. Argos were a big help in changing that mindset. And 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 so we incrementally flood all through the years, all through the year, the season. Instead of old days, we used to have everything ready by day one. But if it wasn't ready by day one, it was, you know, we were late. Yeah, and that was e – but for, from a management standpoint, hell, George, it's probably easier to do it that way. Just flip the, flip the it, switch, it, let it get on, and I'm done messing with it, you know? And then that's right. You just duck hunt. Those days, that's that's what I call eating out, eating the fat's gone. We were we were living on the fat, and the fat's gone. We've got to be a lot smarter. Uh, and seasons are longer. We, we you know it's about seventy two days in a sixty day season. 
with our splits. That's a long time. It's amazing how much the weather changes in that 72 days as well. It's absolutely incredible. Um, so you got to be prepared every day for whatever's going to happen. I, that's what I love about it. It's, it's a live performance every day. You have no idea when you wake up what's going to happen that day. You think you do. But every time you really think you got it nailed, it'll freaking it'll bite you in the you-know-what every time. Mother Nature always always is in control. I, I feel like I feel like this has been – a super, I mean, for me, this has been a super interesting conversation and, you know, we'd need eight to 10 days to cover all the questions. I have. I'm, I'm a guy, I have more questions when I see a guy like you that knows what they're talking about than what somebody would have in reading, a, you know, how to put a television together in a different language with an instruction manual. I just, I can come up with a question. You wouldn't want to out question me because I can go on forever, but, <laughs> but I really, I, I know we both really appreciate your time, George, and I, you know, you've got plenty of things for going sure. on, and, and and this has been a lot of fun. It's been an honor, privilege for me, and I thank you guys for doing a podcast. I think we've got to educate the public on the truth, you know, and not everybody's going to believe what we say, but that's their decision. But we, I'm, us three, we've been talking the truth all for the last almost two hours. And let me hit you with one last thing, George. Do you have, and this is a, probably another dumb question, but you have businesses that you're working on, I'm assuming, outside of Five Oaks as well, correct? Yeah, our, our for-profit business are, are uh, mainly commercial real estate investments. Um, and that I don't spend every day on. I've got uh, another person that's investing with me on that. Part of my son-in-law's responsibility, half his time is going to be on that. The other half is going to be on the 501c3. And then uh, Dr. Ryan Askren, he's full-time on the 501c3. Uh, working the students and the research so uh yeah i mean we we, we still got to eat <laughs> you know You're being staying. a volunteer between ducks unlimited and and all the other volunteer activities that i do you still got to eat but but you know the volunteer side is the rewarding side and that's that's where you um I, i'm just extremely fortunate to be in a position that i can do that you know that's and i thank my parents uh, and grandparents for that, you know, being able to have that opportunity to do that. And I got an incredible wife that she volunteers her time as well. Every Wednesday night, she drives up to Little Rock, Rock Babies for three hours. Um, and she's very supportive, lives out here in the country. I mean, she's she born and raised in New York City. Uh, you know, she loves it. She appreciates it. And uh, I couldn't do it without her because, you know, you it's tough enough. I couldn't imagine going home every night, not having somebody that supports what I do. Well, if you guys are listening to this, hopefully, hopefully if you guys are listening to this, that a variety of, of folks could take something from this. And, and, you know, I think we can all, we can all take something from it. And some of us can take multiple things from it. And, and one of those that I know we can all glean from this podcast and listen to George is that, you know, it's about the resource. We say that, Everybody can say it. It's easy to say it and then move on and laugh. But, you know, yeah, yeah, it's all about the resource at a Ducks Unlimited banquet and slap each other on the back and have a good time. But, you know, somebody like George is actually putting the the rubber to the road and spending millions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars, whatever, employing folks, uh, setting things up legally to ensure that the resource on his watch is going to be in better shape than it is when he found it, you know, so whether that's what you take from it or some of the more technical things about how to treat customers through a business standpoint, uh, business slash, you know, a business slash charity standpoint. Um, another thing, you know, that I hope people get is, you know, 
don't take for granted uh, the land that that your family has or that you have the rights to use. Don't take for granted planning for the vitality and and longevity of that land. And uh, and don't take advantage the if you are able to buy some of that, if you're able to keep on to some of that inherited family property, don't take that for granted because that is, you know, in essence, what it's all about. And it's just cool to hear what George, you know, some of the stuff that he went through and he's brushing over it. But I guarantee you that it was a it was a fight. And it's pretty cool to hear that all come to fruition and, and see it all come to fruition. And and uh, I hope everybody can take some of it because I know that Ira and I did. Hey, George, I just want to say thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Great story. Um, but my employees keep passing these notes underneath the door. And uh, so I need Let's to hit go. the road. So thanks a lot. Thank you, guys. And, uh, I hope to see you next time you're down in Arkansas. Love to see it you. sounds good, man. I appreciate yeah. it. Uh, Thank you, you guys. guys are welcome to come see us anytime. Thank, Thank you, George. George. Have a great day. You too, brother. Bye.